0: Well, good morning. I bring you greetings from Henson Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon, a church that is uh, familiar to many of you. Uh, I want you to know that uh, we pray for this church on a regular basis. Uh, this, this church has a, a, a near and dear place uh, in my heart and in the, the hearts of our congregation. It seems like maybe we get the better deal out of the partnership between our two churches, we send you poor undergraduate students. You send us graduates that go get jobs and, and, and build into our church. But, but we've been doing this for a number of years now. I, I remember first meeting uh, your previous pastor, Josh, uh, years ago, shortly after I had moved to the state of Oregon. Uh, that was 11 years ago. So I probably met him 9 or 10 years ago. We were hosting a Nine Marks conference. He had come to it got to meet him, we, we kind of hit it off, um, had a number of Oregon State students at the time, began to develop that relationship between the two churches, and, and now to have Doug and Bridget here, um, as, as well as so many others that have kind of moved back and forth between our two churches. It's, it's a joy to be able to partner with you. I, I don't know if you feel that way with us, but we definitely feel like you are partners with us in the gospel, uh, in the gospel work. Uh, and now in a, in a new way with the Northwest Church Partnership. So I'm so, so deeply thankful for you. And it's a, it's a privilege to preach here again. Um, I'm also really grateful for this church personally. Uh, some of you will know that my, uh, one of my sons, Christian, uh, became a Christian his freshman year here at Oregon State. This is just a few years ago. And that was in part through the personal ministry of people like Sean Jim and, and Nate Ross, but also the ministry of this church and I will be forever grateful uh, for for this church for that. Christian is doing really well. He is in Chicago uh, doing the Chicago course on preaching at the moment, heading into ministry, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing him in just uh, a couple of weeks as he comes home for break. So thank you for inviting me, uh, and and thank you for partnering with us up in Portland in the gospel. So I uh, want to ask you this morning a question just to start off. I want you to think about this. I want you to think, kind of come up with an answer in your head. What do you want God to do for you? What do you want God to do for you? Now, not not in order to prove something. Not like in order to prove that he's there. You you hear stories about that, right? People asking God to do something because they don't really believe in him, but they're, they're looking for proof that he's there. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about deep down your heart of hearts, what do you want God to do for you, to help you, to, to, to serve you in some way with, with something that you want or need, but you cannot do for yourself? What is that thing? Now, some of you are sitting there, and you're immediately recoiling, and you're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. we're not supposed to think about God that way. That's, that's impious. That's, that's irreligious to want... God to do something for me, uh, my, my theology tells me that, that I'm, I'm here to serve God, not the other way around. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, preacher, that's a mean question to ask. That's a really mean question to ask because you just assume that God would, would never bother to do anything for you. God, God helps other people, but, but not you. Now, I, I think if, if either end of that spectrum describes you that you think, oh, no, no, I should, I, it would be impious for me to think that God should do something for me, or I just can't even imagine that God would do something for me, then I have really good news for you. If that's you, I've got great news for you, because it turns out you do not understand God. If that's the way you think about God, that he wouldn't do something for you, then you don't understand him. God is just the kind of God who serves His people so that His people will trust Him. That's kind of the main thing I want to convince you of this morning, that our God is the kind of God who serves His people so that His people will will glorify Him, will will worship Him by trusting Him. And to, to demonstrate that, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn or open in your phones to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're kind of diving into the middle of a a long extended story that is being told in 2 Samuel. But but we're going to do our best, kind of plopping down here into the middle of it. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to read just the first three verses to get us started. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Okay, I'm going to stop there. You just need to set the scene. We're not told how much time has passed between the end of chapter 6, when David brought the ark of God to Jerusalem and the opening of chapter seven with David's conversation with Nathan the prophet. This it's, it's important to remember when you read a book like First Samuel or Second Samuel, or especially 1 and and uh, especially here in Second Samuel, we're, we're 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 being given history. These are known as histories, but but we are not being given strict chronological history. We are being given what what maybe is best understood as theologically driven history. This is a history that is meant to help us grasp the significance of David's reign, particularly here in 2 Samuel. Now, now given that we're told there in verse 1 that this conversation with Nathan happened after the Lord had given David rest from all his surrounding enemies, it is likely that this conversation that is recorded for us in chapter 7 actually happened after the events of chapters 8 through 12 which narrates for us all of David's wars and how he finally got to that rest. But the story is placed here, kind of out of order, so that we will see the connection with chapter 6. The end of chapter 6, the great king, Yahweh, has come to his city. The Ark of the Covenant has been brought into Jerusalem. And now his servant David wants to do something for him. David lives in this this wonderful palace. But but that seems unseemly to David, while God still lives in a tent. So so David wants to build God a a house of cedar, like his own house of cedar, like his own palace. Nathan thinks it's a good idea. So Nathan says, yeah, the Lord is with you. so, So go ahead that sets up the very first surprise of chapter 7. David is not going to serve God. God is going to serve David. So if you're taking notes, this, this is the first point. We're going we're to consider God's promise to David. God's promise to David. I'm going to pick up the story in verse 4. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All right, far from building a house for God, God is going to build a house for David. And, and right away, you see that there's a play of words going on, right? The Hebrew word for house shows up 15 times in this chapter. Sometimes it means palace, as it did in, in verse 2. Uh, sometimes it means temple, as it does in, in verse 5, and again in verse 13. You, you, you see that there. Go and tell my servant David, thus says, Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in, a, a, a temple for, for the Lord. And that makes sense, right? Sometimes it means palace, sometimes it means temple, What is a temple other than a palace for God? Sometimes, you see this later in the chapter, sometimes it means dynasty. You see that there in verse 11. David wants to build God a house temple, but God says, no. No, I, instead, I am going to do something for you. I am going to make your line into a dynasty. And and your offspring's throne will be established forever. It is quite a promise. And and while the narrative up until this point in 2 Samuel has led us to expect that God is with David, we're not surprised when Nathan says, go and do it for the Lord is with you. We're not really prepared for how big a promise this is. It is frankly outrageous. After all, we if, if, if you've been reading along in 2 Samuel, we, we've just seen God take the kingdom away from Saul and his house. And, and we know up until this point that, that David has, he's been faithful so far, but we also know that the story is not over yet. Saul started really well too. And yeah, David's off to a good start, but, but especially if you're reading ahead, you, you, you know chapter 11 is coming. Well, that's the point of why chapter 7 comes where it does, I think. It it comes before the story is over. It comes before chapter 11 and David's fall into sin with Bathsheba so that we will understand just what kind of promise this is and what kind of God this is. this, This promise is not payment for services rendered. It, it is not a reward for faithfulness. This is a sheer gift, a, a, a grant. Uh, to, to, to use kind of medieval terminology, it's a boon, right? From a great king to a lesser king. And, and to make it even more clear, this is not a casual promise, the way, the way we make promises. You, you know, we, we make casual promises all the time. But that's not the kind of promise that God is making here. This promise comes in the form of a covenant. Now, now I know the word, the word covenant isn't used in this passage, but the, but the form of an ancient Near Eastern covenant is, is right here in these verses. And, and, and you know what they say, right? If, 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 you, if you hear this noise out on your front porch and you think, boy, that sure sounds like a duck. And, and you kind of peek out the window, and uh, look, look, seems, seems, it's sure walking like a duck. Well, then you know you just open the door, and you pay the pizza delivery man, so he'll go away. Oh, come on, guys. I'm in Corvallis. Give me some help here, right? No, if it, if it looks like a duck, and if it sounds like a duck, it's the delivery man, and you pay him, well, that's what we got here. It, it looks like a duck. It sounds like a duck it really is what it sounds like. It's, it's a covenant. Let, let, me, let me show you what I mean. It, it starts with a preamble in, in verses 5 to 7. In and, and the ancient Near East, when a covenant was put forward, there, there would always be a preamble that, that identifies just who this great king is that's entering into a covenant with this lesser king. And what do we see there in verses 5 to 7? Who is this person? Well, this God is the God who who brought Israel up from Egypt. And and he's been moving about with them wherever they went, no matter where they went. That's the point of the tent. Unlike all the other ancient Near Eastern gods of the nations surrounding Israel, the God of Israel did not belong to a place. He, He wasn't tied to geography. God belonged with his people. He he dwelt with them wherever they were. What's more, he's the God who served his people, not the other way around. That's the point of the question there in verse 7. I I, I never said to, to any of the people that I put over Israel, any of those judges, I never said to them, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Why haven't you gotten around to to building a building for me like all the other gods of the nations have? I never said that. It's so easy for us to get, get the wrong idea about God. To think of Him as needing us, needing our service, needing our sacrifices, needing our offerings. Friends, God does not need us. He he doesn't need us in any way in which that word could possibly be understood. He does not need us. We need him. And and right away, God makes that clear to to David and to us. The God who's speaking is not a God who's, who's waiting around for us to serve Him. No, from the very beginning, He is the God who is with His people and who serves them. Well, then in in verses 8 and 9, we get what's called, with with these ancient covenants, we get what's called the historical prologue. And this is where whenever a great king would enter into a covenant with a, a lesser king in the ancient Near East, he would remind the other party what he had already done for them. Th- this is the basis for the covenant that's about to be entered into. This is why the great king can impose the covenant because he's already done something for the lesser king. Uh, you, you, you can you can think about this. Uh, the best example of one of these covenants is the Ten Commandments. You know, uh, and and so you could you could think about in, in Exodus twenty um, or or, or um, Exodus. Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 at at Sinai, uh, what did God do first? Well, he, he reminded Israel that he had already done something for them. He had already brought them up from Egypt. Well, here, God reminds David what he's already done for him. I took you from the pasture and put you in the palace. I took you from being a shepherd and made you a prince. And not only that, God reminds them look, I've, I've cut off all of your enemies. Not Saul, not Goliath, not the Philistines, not even Saul's descendants like Ishbosheth. None of them were able to lay a hand on you. But now here's the real surprise at this point in a covenant, when the great king has reminded the lesser king what he's already done for him, and it's about time now to, to, to make clear what the terms of the covenant are, at this point what we expect is a demand for obedience and loyalty. Because of all I've done for you, you must now serve and obey me. And that's the way the Ten Commandments work, right? I, I, I brought you up out of Egypt, now obey me. No other gods before me. Make no images. Keep all of my commands. It's what what are called the stipulations of a covenant. But but here's here's the surprise. Instead of saying, because of everything I did for you, David, now here's what I expect of you. God says, since I've done all of this for you already, now I'm going to do even more what? I'm going to do even more? This is not what we are expecting. But that's what he says. He puts it in, in general terms in verses 9 to 11, and then he spells, out, spells it out more specifically in verses 11 to 16, just like he did in Exodus with the stipulations. You get the general stipulations in the Ten Commandments themselves, and then you get the specific stipulations on through the rest of, uh, through, through chapter 24 about. Well, that's what's going on here. The the general stipulation and then the fine print of the stipulations, except it's all about what God's going to do, not what David has to do. So so the general headline is there in verse 9. I am going to make your name great, and through you, verse 10, I'm going to give my people rest. That's the general summary. The stipulation that God is putting upon himself in this covenant. But then you get into the fine print, right? How am I going to do this? Well, I'm going to do this by establishing your house, verses 11 and 12, your your, your dynasty, your your offspring. Your offspring is is going to build the the temple house for my name. It's not going to be you. Your, Your offspring is going to reign on the throne of this kingdom forever, verse 13. And unlike Saul, my love will not depart from your offspring, verse 15. He is going to be to me like a son, and I am going to be to him like a father, verse 14. These are all the stipulations of the covenant, the requirements of the covenant, and they all fall on God. Now, this is an incredible promise, but 3,000 years later, we, we have to ask ourselves two questions. First, did God keep the promise? But then second, what does God's promise to an ancient Near Eastern monarch have to do with us? The answer to those two questions is the reason that I think 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament. Because it is this promise that leads us to Jesus. I want to just quickly walk you through the story. As 2 Samuel ends and 1 Kings opens, it looks like God is keeping his promise just as we'd expect. Solomon comes to the throne. Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. Everything looks great, and then everything starts to go downhill. By the end of his life, Solomon has become unfaithful. He's married hundreds of foreign wives who have turned his heart away from the Lord. And God warns Solomon that the kingdom is going to be divided, split in two as a result. And then what follows through the rest of 1 Kings and on through 2 Kings is a long line of kings who are descended from David biologically but have literally descended from David theologically into sin and unfaithfulness. Yeah, there are bright spots of of hope here and there. You you think of Josiah or or Hezekiah, but it's never enough, and it never lasts. And by the end of the Old Testament, what do we see? The throne is empty, and the kingdom is ruled by a foreign king who lives in a foreign land. Yeah, the temple's rebuilt, but it, it looks nothing like Solomon's temple. None of the glory is there. And unlike when Solomon's temple was finished and the the glory, the Shekinah glory cloud of God descended upon it so that God dwelt in the temple, when the temple's rebuilt, no cloud descends. There's no Ark of the Covenant inside. It's empty.
1: As the New Testament
0: opens, another foreign king, King Herod, sits on the throne. Herod has built yet another temple. It is splendid, but it is corrupt and hollow. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears. Announced by angels as the promised son of David. He seems to be the Messiah king everyone is waiting for. His miracles, his teaching, his righteousness all point to him as the good shepherd right after the heart of David. At one point, actually, the people see this, and so at one point, they even try to make him king by force. But in the end, they reject him, and he is crucified by a foreign power. And the promise to David seems to have failed forever. Until three days later, when Jesus gets up from the dead, never to die again, with the power of resurrection life, the power of the age to come, 40 days later, he ascends to heaven, and where is Jesus now? Jesus is sitting on the throne of his Father in heaven. And even now, what is Jesus doing? He is building the temple, which turns out not to be a building at all, but but the people of God, among whom God will dwell as the place for his name. It turns out that God kept his promise not through an unending dynasty, but through an undying offspring. A a seed who is truly the son of David and truly the son of God. A a king who would endure the rod of correction. You you see that there in in verse 14. But, But not for his own sin, instead for the sins of his people. A king whose throne will endure forever because it is the throne of God himself and God the Son sits upon it. Friends, this is Jesus. This is the promised seed, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to David. This is what we celebrate at Advent. And this is why God's promise to David matters to us. Why did God make the promise in the first place? Well, he made it out of love, love for David, love for the son, and love for his people. Look look back at at verse 10. Having promised to make a great name for David, he then says, and I, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. The whole reason for making the house of David great was to provide rest for God's people, to to deliver them from their enemies, to give them a home. David did this in part. Solomon did it in part. But ultimately, this is what Jesus did. This this is what the gospel is all about. On the cross, Jesus Christ delivered his people from their greatest enemies, which turns out not to be Philistines or ducks, but sin and death itself. He did it by dying for them and so conquered death once for all. And when he got up from the dead, He didn't do it just for himself. No, he did so to prepare for us a home, which isn't like real estate in Palestine. No, it's a a new heavens and a new earth, a, a home, it turns out, that is nothing less than the presence of God himself. You understand that we are being built into the temple of God. That the reason that there will be no temple in heaven is because we will be there. We are the temple of God, the place where God dwells. Already, if you are in Christ, God dwells in you. The day will come when that building is finished and God dwells forever among his people. That day has already begun. You you, you understand that, that the branch is the, the place where God dwells here in Corvallis. Not the only place, but that's who you are. Your identity is not a bunch of college students and grad students and people who are working jobs and raising families, though all of that is true. Your identity is not just me and Jesus. god dwells in me by his spirit i mean that's true but your identity is fundamentally a corporate identity god dwells in you as a church and one of the ways he displays himself to corvallis is 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 by the way he's seen in your midst by the way you love one another By, by the way You interact with one another, by the way you serve one another, by the way that you inconvenience yourselves for the sake of those around you, by the way you're hospitable to one another, even as God has been hospitable to you. Your life together as a church is meant to be a display of the truth of the gospel here in Corvallis, because when people see your your life together, what they should see is something that they cannot explain without recourse to God and the gospel. Well, this is what God promised David and accomplished in Jesus. And on this promise, our salvation hangs. If you are in Christ, God has promised that you will be with him forever. Now, how can you be certain that God will keep that promise? How, 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 can, you, how can you know any sort of assurance in, in, in your own salvation? Christian, your assurance does not come from how you're feeling about your relationship with God today. Your, your assurance does not come from, from your Feelings of God's love for you today, for you today. Now, your your assurance comes from your certainty of God's love for Jesus. I don't know if you've thought about this, but but your assurance isn't grounded in you. It's grounded in the the the, the unbreakable. The unimpeachable, the undying relationship between the Father and the Son. Because ultimately, this promise to David was a promise to Christ. For this promise to fail, God's love for Christ must fail. Is that going to happen? For, for, this, for this promise to fail, God's, God's commitment to glorify his own Son must fail. Is that going to happen for for this promise to fail god's throne itself must fail for that is the throne on which christ sits is that going to happen christian your security your, your assurance rests secure because it rests in the love of god the father for god the son A love that has been from all eternity past and a love that will be for all eternity future. So so don't flatter yourself that God keeps his promise because of your faithfulness. Of course, when you try to flatter yourself that way, all, all you end up doing is creating insecurity in yourself. So don't do that either. God doesn't keep his promise because of you. No, it it doesn't depend upon your faithfulness. Do not fear, though, that he will abandon this promise because of your sin. No, he cannot abandon this promise. It is Christ's faithfulness that won your pardon. And it is God's love for his own son that keeps you secure in that pardon. So how do we respond to such an extraordinary promise that comes to us in the gospel? Well, I think we should respond as David did. Which brings me to my second point. I've only got two points. We're we're, we're getting close to being done. Here's my second point. We're going to look at David's request of God. David's request of God. We'll pick it up in verse 18. Then King David went in. And sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing, shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. All right, on the one hand, David's response is exactly what we'd expect, right? He's, he's humbled by God's generosity and His grace. You see that there in verse 18, who am I? What, what is my house? He, he acknowledges how unusual this is, that, that it's not anything about himself or his house that has led God to make this promise, but simply, verse 21, because of God's own heart, because of his own will and pleasure. But then we get another surprise. And Beginning in verse 22, David praises God for God's greatness, for his power, for his redeeming love for Israel. And then in verse 25, he basically says, God, since you are this kind of God, and since you have made this kind of promise to me, do it keep your promise god do as you have spoken i don't know how that hits you but to me that's bold i mean that's bold if if david had said god i mean you really shouldn't have done this i'm not worthy I totally understand if you change your mind. I don't deserve you to keep this promise. Anyway, we would totally get that. That kind of sounds like a bunch of us, right? It's, it's, it's humble. It's, it's, it, it's, it's... Yeah, it just it kind of feels appropriate. Now, on the other hand, if David had said, God, since you've promised to make my name great, well, I, I'd really like a bigger palace. I could use a stronger army. I need wiser advisors than I've got. You know, I think we would understand that promise too. I mean, that kind of response too. We wouldn't have been impressed with it. But, but we'd understand the temptation, right, to, to test God and see if he really meant what he said. But David doesn't do either of those things. He, he doesn't test God, but he also doesn't brush him off with false modesty. I, instead, he, he acknowledges that I don't deserve this grace, but then boldly says, but since you promised it, do it. I think of it as kind of humble chutzpah, right? Humble chutzpah. Friends, that is the essence of faith. Faith takes its stand humbly. It doesn't depend on what it brings to the table. Faith knows that anything good that we receive from God We receive by his grace, not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, not because of our good deeds, not because of our wise decision, but solely because of God's love, God's pleasure. So faith takes its stand humbly, but faith takes its stand. It doesn't wonder if God really meant it. When he said it, it it doesn't ask for further proof. It, it, It doesn't test. Like David, faith takes God at his word. It takes God's word at face value. Because faith recognizes just whose word it is. And then it insists that God do what he said he's going to do. Now, now, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, you, you understand that, that the way I've been talking uh, does, doesn't describe you, then I, I want you to, to be really clear. This is what God asks of you. God doesn't ask you to go and do great things for him, and, and then he'll think about accepting you. God's not asking you to go and fix your life and clean yourself up and make yourself presentable and then he'll consider maybe loving you. Now what God asks is that you humbly accept that you need his love. That that, that you recognize that there's nothing you can do to deserve that love. And then accept and boldly believe that he has actually loved you in Jesus Christ and died for you in order to to, to bring you into his family. God simply asks that you turn away from all those other things that you've been trusting in to, to vindicate yourself to God and instead trust only in the love that he's displayed for you in the gospel. Friends, it is the easiest and the hardest thing to do in the world. I'd love to talk to you more about that. I don't even know you, uh, but there are people here that do. If you you came with somebody, uh, a friend that's maybe been talking to you uh, about about Christianity, or, or maybe you came because it's Advent, and during Advent you go to church, whatever brought you here, don't leave. Without considering what it is that God has done for you and what it means for you to trust that you know as a church, this is why we pray we, we, we don't we don't pray to change god's mind we, we, we don't we don't gather together and, and pray together because because you know God maybe is a little uncertain about like the best way forward, and he needs our advice. No, no, we, we don't we don't pray because for some reason the, the future is uncertain to God. We we pray because this is what it means to have faith. God is glorified as He is seen to keep His word. So so far from being a disincentive to prayer. God's sovereign promises give us confidence to pray. Uh, Like David, our our courage to pray doesn't doesn't come from our wisdom. It doesn't come from our desires. No, it it comes from his sovereign will and revelation. It's why in in my own personal practice, as I I start each day in prayer, the, the main thing I do is I pray the scriptures for the people I'm praying for that day. I mean, I have all sorts of ideas and other things that I pray for them, but honestly, I have no idea if any of the th- those ideas that I have in my head are God's will for the people I'm praying for that day. But you know what I know for certain is God's will for the people I'm praying for that day? What he's revealed in his word. And so I pray it. I pray it. God, do these things for your people today. Do these things for my kids today. Do these things for my church members today. That's a prayer that I can be confident in. If you're a Christian, I want you to think again of that question that I began with. What do you want God to do for you? There's a challenge here for us as we think about, just briefly, David's response How much time and energy do we spend waiting for God to do things for us that he's never promised to do, all the while doubting that he will do the very thing that he said he will do? Several years ago, I had to check uh, one of my other kids into the hospital. It would be the third time in just six months. One of my other sons was, was very, very sick. And you know what I wanted God to do? Of course you know what I wanted God to do. I wanted God to heal my son. I wanted to not have to check him into the hospital again. Now, as it turns out, God did heal my son. But he might not have. You see, God's never promised to spare His servants the afflictions and the trials that ravage a fallen world. God's never promised that any of us are going to get married. God's never promised that any of us are going to have a glorious career that's never marked by unemployment or underemployment. God's never promised that all of our kids will turn out great. He's never promised any of those things. You know what he has promised? He's promised that he loves you in Christ. He's promised that he will not lead you into a trial that is too great for you. He's promised that he will not forsake you. I wonder if you're at all like me tempted to tie my faith in the promises that God has made to his willingness to come through on the promises he has not made. Friends, that's not faith. Faith humbly accepts that I don't deserve anything and then boldly takes its stand on what God has said that this trial that I'm going through right now is not too great. That, That this trial that I'm going through right now does not mean that God does not love me or my family. That he is with me and his strength will be sufficient. So how about you? What do you want God to do for you? that he hasn't already done for you in Jesus. Let's pray.